I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I am joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Imogen, how are you? I'm extremely well. I've just been back, come back even, <laughs> come back. From America. From America, New York. New York. New York, so no, good they not... named it twice. Yes, exactly. Apparently. Well, I can tell you've just come back from New York because so you had a very good manicure. I have, yes. I've got special a nails. New York manicure. Yes. And um, I, I hear you've been romping around town in the company of Candace Bushnell. I have, my old friend from yeah. Sex and the City. Yes, yeah. she's divine. It was just really interesting. I haven't been there for a, a very long mm. time. And uh, in the light of what we're going to talk about in the programme today, it was it was extremely and unadulteratedly woke. Really? Yes. Just lots of... You can't be very Was careful. it a vision of the future? That's what I thought, a bit. Did everyone have their pronouns written on their chest? Practically. <laughs> Tattooed on their foreheads? Yeah, no, everyone was very earnest. And really? Yeah, you have to be very careful what you say. Really? Yeah. Well, so what are they all doing? Just sitting around drinking mineral water? No, no, no. There's a lot of alcohol, obviously. Okay. And, and it's all still... I mean, there's obviously there's the naughty people who are still mm. having a good time. But I think in general, mm. we uh, we went and had a look around the universities mm. for my daughter. And it was there was a whole list of pronouns on the, really? on the wall when you walked in. And uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. And also there was there because Whippy Goldberg was being cancelled. Oh yes, all that was going on. Mm. Everyone's being cancelled. And a friend of mine's son was entertaining a lady friend mm. that afternoon, and she said to him, "You need to get consent in writing before anything happens." What? Yeah, terrifying. No. Yes. And she works at a university. Well, you have to get us. You have to. No, get no. I mean, she was joking slightly, but it was like it was like, oh my god, just don't, don't. I mean, it's such a bizarre world that we live in, though, isn't it? Because mm. everything is everything. Everyone is incredibly sensitive and walking on eggshells. Yeah. And yet, and yet, you can watch hardcore porn on the internet. I know. It makes just sort of no sense. It's I know. Sort of the complete sort of paradox. Everyone's on walking on eggshells. You can't offend anybody. Yeah, you can't. You can't. You can't misgender or mis. You know. And yet, you can watch utter debasement. For mm. free on the internet, I just don't understand. It's odd. It's like you're either one. It's just extreme. It's just everything is just extremes at the moment. Yes, yes. And where betide you, you <coughs> step on anyone's toes by mistake, yeah. or just fundamentally a little bit poorly educated, or just forget something, yes. or just say the wrong thing. Say I the mean, wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, no one's allowed to make any mistakes, and yet no. people behave appallingly. Yeah. It's just shocking. Anyway, coming up on today's show. There is a law being drafted to clean up the internet for children. We will hear from the CEO of a group whose mission is to help kids keep safe on the web. And the Queen announced that she would like Camilla to have the title of Queen Consort when Charles becomes King. We will talk to our resident astrologer, Theresa Chung, who will see what the stars say about her royal promotion. But first, a drug labelled as a massive game changer for weight loss has been given its stamp of approval by the NHS. A miracle weight loss drug that was only available to diabetic patients has now been approved for prescription by the NHS. It mm. is called mm. semaglutide, and the results are groundbreaking. The fat-busting medicine is said to work as well as gastric band surgery, with trials showing it slashes overweight and obese people's weight by 15%. Now, joining me to discuss this is Dr. Ellie Cannon, an NHS GP and a Mail on Sunday columnist, busy woman, mm -hmm. um, to talk about semaglutide. Ellie, I should just declare myself, I am on semaglutide. <laughs> she is, and, and oh, she's, like, she's like a sort of slim chicken. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this best drug ever, apparently. I want some. So what's your, what's your feelings about all this? Well, the reason I think it's very positive is because um, we've got our weight and obesity strategy really all wrong in the UK. Um, we're yes. still 
You're we're so right. We're still um, putting it onto the individual. We're still blaming people. We're still not acknowledging that we live in an obesogenic society. And actually, um, things like bariatric surgery are fantastic and we don't talk about them enough. We don't recommend them enough. And I hold my hands up as a GP and I say we don't recommend it enough in clinic. So if there is another weight loss medication as you have said it's fantastic mm. i think that's brilliant have you got a, have you actually got any patients on it we have got patients on it um for diabetes type 2 diabetes mm. which is mm. what the um current indication is for but as with a lot of um as with a lot of the diabetes medication, obviously one of the side effects is indeed weight loss. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I ended up on it because I, I was, I've always struggled with my weight, as mm. Imogen will tell you, mm. and I've got a very underactive thyroid, have, and then yeah. I became menopausal, and it just sort of became it's the perfect storm. It was isn't really it? difficult yeah. to keep my weight down, and mm. I am quite, and I'm very conscious of the of the dangers of being overweight. Mm. So I was really trying hard. Mm. And I'd gone on some, I'd, you know, really made an effort, lost quite a lot of weight. And then I suddenly found that it was just coming back on. You were sort of plateaued, hadn't I'd you? I plateaued. And mm. whatever I did, I just couldn't, I just couldn't sort of, it was just a constant daily battle. Sort of just living on air. It was, yes. <laughs> so I went, to see a, um, I went to see a bariatric surgeon and I said, I'd like to have a gastric sleeve because I'd just like to be able to reduce mm. the amount of food that I can physically mm. eat. And he said to me brilliantly, which I shall always remember and love him for, you're not fat enough for a gastric uh, sleeve. Um, um, but he did say there is this, and this was a while ago, he said there's new drug that's just been approved in, in america it, and and the trade mm. name um was different but the but the the, the substance is called semaglutide and in fact I, initially i was on lyroglutide which is a daily injection mm. but this is this is a mm. weekly one so where do you inject it then just in your stomach it's very right. easy it's and not is it a, painful to inject no not at all it's just a little tiny little fine as anything needle. really and does it make you feel sick it's what's called a subcutaneous injection mm. isn't it yeah it's yeah. actually going in like a covid vaccine no no no, no. it's not no people <laughs> it's just a small under the skin injection so is it like, it's like a, the same as heparin or have something you ever, like have that have you ever done yeah. that thing exactly. where you have to prick yeah. the end of your finger to get some blood out y- yes it's basically like yeah. that does uh, it make you feel sick though does it da, da, how does it so affect your body it doesn't have any so the only so what it does is it basically Works on the hunger hormones, doesn't it, Dr. Ellie? Mm-hmm. So it suppresses your hunger yeah. hormones so that you're not f- as hungry as you would be naturally all the time. So is that your pancreas? What is it? What, is, what does it go for? So it's glucagon. It's the hormone glucagon. So we often talk about um, insulin, obviously, with diabetes, mm. which um, allows your cells to take up, take up sugar. And glucagon is actually releasing, releasing the sugar. So, yes, glucagon is a pancreatic hormone. So that, that's the sort of pathways that it's working on, which is why it's so effective um, for diabetes. But, of course, that also affects how we metabolize um, how we break down carbohydrate um, and sugar, hence the weight loss. Mm. And of course, you know, if you're obese like I was, t- technically, mm. you are effectively pre-diabetic. Mm. So mm. it's sort of, so, you know, the getting your weight down basically, you know, stops you from being pre-diabetic, doesn't it? So it stops you from feeling hungry yeah. or does it make you feel it's very full odd. quicker? I mean, I mean, my experience is that I, it sort of changed my relationship with food completely. Food is now just literally fuel for mm. me. I don't think about it at all in emotional terms. I don't, think of it as a reward i used to be one of those people who used to think of food as a reward mm. and it was my way yeah. you know i don't really drink i don't really i've had a hard day i'll have some yeah, cake exactly yeah. i'm one of those people mm. who does that um obviously very sugar effect i mean i think sugar affects me very mm. i like sugar sugar is mm. my thing and it mm. takes that away because it does doesn't it 
with me, it sort of stabilizes your blood sugar, doesn't it, Dr. Ellie? In a sort yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, 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 it's exactly all of this and what you're experiencing and what you can feel are the symptoms of actually having that sugar controlled properly, your body being allowed to utilize it properly. And as you say, that's all um, sort of linked in with appetite suppression and how your body experiences hunger, how it sort of craves sugar and the ups and the downs have all gone because Mm. of the injection. So everything is much more stable. And then that affects when you say sort of like, you know, you like sugar as a reward, then that goes on to affect... Um, those pathways in the brain when we talk about dopamine so you're sort of looking for that hit of sugar um, you know a bit like if you're addicted to gambling or smoking or whatever it was which you, you no longer have because everything is sort of calm and suppressed and you've got a sort of slow but steady low supply and I've noticed that I've noticed that I don't eat sugary things I mean oh, really? my, when I went to, when I when I was put on it the the, mm. the, the, the bariatric surgeon said just you know, she said, don't go on a funny diet, just eat what you want to eat. And I noticed that my desire to eat rubbish mm. basically yeah. disappeared. Chocolate, no, I don't really yeah. eat, no. But is it expensive on the NHS? Is it... Is it it's uh, much cheaper than having 68% of the population obese or well, overweight. Well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking on a sort of, you know, of the financial equation must add up quite... Mm. Successful. Well, this is one of the issues with obesity. Is you know we keep sort of we keep sort of as I say putting it onto the individual. We're not looking. We're not looking at the bigger picture, which is actually something like this medication or something like bariatric surgery in Mm. the long term, even in the five-year term, Mm. um, would reduce costs. Also, hugely improve people's quality of life, put Mm. people back into employment. Mm. You know, so many different things. Mm. Obesity isn't just one illness. It doesn't just cause diabetes. Of course, it causes all other things: heart Mm. disease, depression, arthritis. So there's huge knock-on effects if you're just going to be um, very sort of um, financial about it. But, you know, there's a huge quality of life issue. So these, I personally think um, these sort of um, obesity drugs or obesity operations really are very, very good value for money, both financially and emotionally and physically. Do you, do you have a queue around the block then for it at the moment? <laughs> We do, yeah. We bet. do. I mean, listen, it's still it's still very difficult. In, it's still very difficult, even in the privacy of a doctor's waiting room, doctor's consulting room, I should say, to talk to patients about weight without sounding pejorative and judgmental. Mm. Um, but actually, if you look at the research about weight management in general practice, actually, if doctors are um, comfortable to bring it up, actually patients really like us to mention it and like us to offer options. The problem is when you mention weight and you don't have options. Yes. This is, this is the issue. Yes. My, I mean, I have to say my doctor was the person who mentioned my weight. Really? And he said to me, look, Sarah, you know, did he? The elephant it's in awfully the room. brave of him. It's, it's, you're a little bit on the fatty, fatty side. So it's very you brave might need to, yes. He could have been decapitated. He could have been decapitated, but I, I, I burst into tears instead. Oh. Because you do, because it's such a sort of... Mm. It's well, such I think, a, you know, we do have a duty, you know, we talk about all sorts of things with our patients. We mm. talk about their sexual preferences, we talk about their weight, we talk about their drug use, their convictions, all sorts of things, their relationships, you know, we just have to, at the end of the day, it's our duty um, to say these sorts of things and it, doctors 
really not interested in your appearance. We're only interested in your health. Exactly, but that's also why it's so annoying that you don't get to see the same doctor anymore. Mm. Really, anno- and this is a completely different discussion, Dr. Yeah. Ellie, but I just think it's so annoying that the, the de- demise of the family doctor where you get to see the same person and you develop a relationship and they know you mm. and they they know when you're okay and when you're not okay. It's just so annoying. But anyway, listen, that was... Brilliant. Not I'm my also... GP surgery, where I've been seeing the same patients for 15 years. Oh. I know. Can we come and join the queue? <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. Thank you. We're recruiting patients. <laughs> thank you for taking Thanks the time so out. Much. Have a lovely day. That was NHS GP and Mail on Sunday columnist, Dr Ellie Cannon. You are listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. You can visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and more. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus at Westminster WAG or Imogen at Imogen EJ. A draft law is under review to help reduce children's exposure to pornography mm. online. This is something I'm obsessed with. As I you know, know you are. I think you've been instrumental in a lot of mm. it, but anyway. Well, I have been banging on. Anyway, I know. A study conducted by the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children shows that over half of 11 to 16-year-olds have been exposed to online pornography. Half? Wow. And it's now, 11 is now the average age at which they start watching this stuff. Oh, which is goodness, not, not, yeah. <clears throat> it's not just, you know, girly pics. No, okay. Anyway. Anyway, joining us now to explain the effects exposure to online pornography has on children is CEO of Childnet International and Director of the UK Safer Internet Centre, Will Gardner. Will Gardner, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So this is the draft online harms bill, which is sort of knocking around Parliament. Um, what's your view? Do you think it's go? Do you think it goes far enough? I mean, the, the basic plan is to impose age restriction technology on the uh, so porn prove your identity prove, or something. Well, yes. Yeah, so basically, you have to sort of put in your, your age date of or, birth. I don't know. I mean, there is. I mean, there is some quite sophisticated age recognition software out there that, that, is there? that can okay. look at your face and basically say how old you are. I did it the other day actually, and it said that I was aged between forty six and. 52 which right. i felt quite pleased about because i'm of course 55 75 but <laughs> <laughs> sorry well <laughs> but um but the thing is as, as we know children are very good at getting i mean you know children any teenager has fake id i mean do you I think know. this is going mm. to work will i think this is a really good plan it was nearly introduced a couple of years ago mm. Um, mm. it's not going to fix the problem by itself but it will it will reduce um, an issue which that same same research flagged up that many young people aged 11 to 13 who come across, stumble across pornography online do it unintentionally. Mm. And this is, the, this is the issue which this will help to protect those children from. I think it won't manage so successfully those young people who are determined and actively seeking this content, but it will protect the young people and it is the majority of young people who come across pornography do come across it unintentionally. So that's the crucial element. And I think it's quite appropriate for us to be thinking about having rules that we have offline where we do try and shield young people and protect young people from having access to this content carried over to an online environment. And I think that's, I think that's a really important move. And it's important because of the impacts, as I'm sure which we're going to talk mm. about in a moment. Mm. I mean, yes, but we've seen we've seen so much. Imogen and I both have teenage children, so mm. you know we get a little bit of it. But but the sort of the the, the way it's changed uh, is very different from the sort of top shelf mag, yes. I presume, which is what what we grew up with, which was you know, well, it wasn't it wasn't you know you couldn't wasn't you animated couldn't for a start. No, it wasn't animated. <laughs> but the point is, it's changing the sexual behaviours of young people, mm. isn't it? Well, I mean, we we you know, we've seen there's a, that website called Everyone's Invited where girls talk about their experiences of sex mm. and things like oral sex 
mm, anal sex, all these stuff, which are all learnt behaviours from porn, are mm. becoming much more prevalent at a much younger age. And girls are feeling huge pressure. I mean, boys too, I think. Mm. I don't think it's just on the girls. It does seem to be that for a lot of young people now, they're sort of almost their first That's sexual their experience way, is, 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 is watching porn. That's the fear, isn't it? That yeah. pornography should become sex education for children and young no. people when, mm. when it is it is it fails on so many counts to be an accurate depiction of what um, sex is or what sex education can be. Not I mean, partly about like what sex physically is and what, what the norm is, but also how bodies what bodies look like and what the relationship is between men and women, as there is a loss of a violence against women in in pornography and i think there are all sorts of issues around that and if if young people come away thinking that that's the norm that's what it's that's what it's like then i think we're really setting i mean i remember my daughter telling me about some friend she has who can't who, who can't have sex because he said watch so much porn that the real world sex just it's isn't boring interesting for enough for him i mean my feeling well is that i mean i just don't <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, call me naive, but I just don't understand why this stuff has to be, can't just be completely, you know, blocked at source. I don't understand why it has to be on the internet at all. I mean, it just it just seems to me that you know, it should it should be like Netflix or sex flicks. It should just be behind <laughs> a paywall. You yeah. should just not be able to access it unless you have an account and you, and you and you purchase it. I don't see why it has to be free. I mean, I completely support this approach. I think let's, let's, let's look at that. And I think some of the criticisms of this approach that the government outlined, or at least they outlined a couple of years ago, is about the, the privacy issues relating to those people who are trying to access uh, pornography. But I think you, know, you were talking about the nature of how you can check your, check your age, because that's what this is. It's not actually checking identity. There's, there's, it's not even necessarily the porn sites who will be checking who you are. They'll have a third party separate to them like names that you might have heard of, like data controllers like Experian or, or I, I, I don't know, where, where they will say, they will do a check to see if you're 18 and the pornography website won't even know who you are. They just know that you are 18. So I think there are absolutely important safeguards that can be put in to protect people's privacy if that is the concern. But I think the paramount concern has to be for the protection of children and young people to make it, I mean, just in terms of the point I was talking about before, the unintentional access and and you know if if you're expecting to see this content then i think it could still be shocking but if you're not expecting to see this content and then you see it i think Terrifying. the impact can be much more profound i agree mm. and i just don't think the privacy of people who want to watch porn should override that young children's young lives children, yeah. you know the, the the right of a young child to not see mm. something that could be potentially very damaging mm. and have a long-term effect do, do uh, is is younger exposure worse then or is it is it repetitive exposure well it's it's difficult to capture data from young children in relation to this as a topic mm. and research in this area has to be really sensitive and it's also difficult to make you know causal effects of pornography on children and young people but i think common sense just has to apply and i think if you do look at the research which is out there you can see that the, even like talking with teenagers, the percentage you see that this is, see this as realistic or wanting to emulate some of the things that they are watching in, in the content that they see. I think it is, it is clear that there is 
there is an impact. And common sense, you, if, we, if we have the rule offline, why do we have that rule offline? I completely you agree. Know, I mean, it it makes, there's there's no point in having censorship. Children. What's the point in having a, a, you know, a rating on a film? Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. An 18 rating. If then, yes. if then free, you know, you can well, just... What's the point of an Ofcom? I know. Everything. It makes a mockery. Yeah. I just, the thing is, I just can't understand why it even has to be out there in the first place. Mm. I just can't understand it. Anyway, so, Will... What what would the next steps be? What would your ideal scenario be? So I think um, you know I want this I want this rule to come in and there to be these ace checks to make it to to safeguard those young people uh, online. But I think that's that's only a part of it. Young people will still come across this content mm-hmm. and they need to understand it for what it is. And it's almost like a a, a, a critical thinking education piece to to help do this. And we've created resources in this space where we've We've done focus groups for children and we've created, kind of using their words, we've created some short films voicing young people's views about pornography. And, and some views are, well, everybody's looking at it, what's the problem? And it's important to hear that view and then to be able to air it and challenge it. But there are other views which are equally important where you will have someone saying, I'm really worried about that my boyfriend or girlfriend will be expecting me to do that or to expecting me to look like that and that I think will really help to deconstruct the idea that this is a semblance of reality and so I think it has to be both sides it has to be let's try and safeguard young people online protecting them from this content but absolutely let's educate them and equip mm. them so if they do come across it they understand it for what it is it's yeah. quite a hard conversation to have though isn't it with your sitting yeah. there with your I mean, 11 year old need to have it with their children, yeah, yeah because the idea of because also you don't want to suddenly sort of ignite any form of curiosity <laughs> so the idea that you've got them too young you say yeah. are you looking at pornography mm. no i haven't but now you mention no. it so i think there is that that's a difficult conversation i mean i think there's a generational thing here there as well which is that our generation of parents the sort of gen x mm. we didn't grow up with free online porn no so we don't we don't really understand it we don't really know what to do about it and it doesn't really you know we, we i mean i would never have dreamt of looking at pornography no. when i was 17 or 18 no it would have just been so weird and wrong it was mm. just that was something that the weird actually yeah, exactly yeah. whereas you know now it's sort of you know completely different so there is a, a generational dis- hmm. disconnect there i think i think um I th- we've done some research with some young adults looking back and i think one quote from a focus group was really powerful it was a young person saying you know we would get information from different sources but where was my parents voice in all of this mm. on this topic mm. um and i think there was a kind of a real call to action and i think there are ways into this conversation which don't have to be right let's talk about porn there, there is a lot of sexualized content available not just online but also offline there are ways into the depiction of um of women particularly online, that, that, you can, that you can start that conversation off with. And I think it is an important conversation. I know that teachers lack confidence to talk about this topic because it involves sex and it involves technology. And those are two things which you know, can be very difficult to talk to a large group of children about. But I think there are ways we can give teachers confidence and draw from young people's views and ideas and uh, so on to try and help to help navigate this well, environment. I, mean, I, mean, I don't know where to begin. I mean, I well, really don't. <laughs> I, to be honest, you could just watch a video by Megan Thee Stallion. Oh, don't. <laughs> I mean, literally, pop videos these days are just mini, a mini, yeah. a min, mostly mini porn films. I yeah, mean, it's really but, hard to know where to begin. It's yeah. also embarrassing as well, trying to talk to your mm. children about things like that. Mm. Yeah. Well, don't you think? <laughs> I, I, yeah, it is. 
it, it can be it can be embarrassing um, absolutely and I think there are ways in which you can start the conversation and absolutely depersonalize it this mm. is not about you and your experience this is about you know this is out there there'll be stuff in the media talking about pornography you can both talk about pornography and, and talk but about what it is I don't want to talk about pornography with my children I, I want know. to talk about nice things Shakespeare mm. yeah. there, are lo- there, are lo- there are lots of things you might not want to talk to your children about but it would be a good idea to do it yeah Thanks, Will. That was brilliant. Thanks very much. That was Will Gardner, CEO of Childnet International and director of the UK Safer Internet Centre. I think we should just switch off the internet. Yes, or don't let children have phones in their bedroom. I don't think that's a good thing because that's where they spend... I just don't understand why it has to be there anyway. Why can't we just block it all? Yeah. Oh, censorship, Sarah, that's controversial. Uh, it, just block it all. I mean, you wouldn't allow lots of people to be, you know, you wouldn't allow crazy, uh, you know, far-right Christians to no. be... Uh, or mm, snuff videos. Exactly. Blocked, so yeah. why do you allow hardcore porn on the yeah. internet? Just turn it off. Just mm. say, no, it's blocked. That's yes. it. It should be like, you remember in the olden days, you used to go stay in a hotel and there was always a channel that was all blurry. <laughs> pixelated, pixelated, heavily. pixelated heavily. Yes, and, and unless you, you got drunk and put your got really credit card in. And put your credit card yeah. in. And then the next morning you'd go down and there'd be the sort of... Oh, yes, £1,500 bill. Yeah, so that's mm. how it should be. Yeah. Not that I've ever done that, obviously. No. <laughs> Gosh, no. <laughs> if Queen Camilla... Mm-hmm doesn't roll off the tongue for you, it's time to start getting used to it. This week, ahead of her Diamond Jubilee, the Queen, the actual Queen, not Queen Camilla, Mm. has announced that Camilla will be named Queen Consort when Charles becomes King. But how will she fare? Here to tell us what's in the stars for Camilla is our resident astrologer, Teresa Chung. Teresa, hello. She's a Leo. No, she's not. She's a Cancer. She's a Cancer. That's my fault. Sorry. Imogen said she was a Leo. No, no, you're right, actually. You're right, actually, Imogen, to hone in on that because Leo is very strong in her tart. She has a rising Leo, which uh, is how the world perceives yeah. her as very royal. Yes. And she has a satin in Leo. And remember, we've talked about the power mm. of satin. So this is kind of who she is. Pride, respect, yeah. royalty, mastery. And actually, for her day, July the 17th that she's born, uh, the logo is, I have what it takes. Oh, that's her, and her mastery is who she is. But the journey of her life is that this mastery was going to come later in life. The, her chart always showed that. The early in life, um, she had a lot and a lot of things to learn about humility mm. um, and not being too intensely private because she is a cancer. Mm. Private and home and who she knows, she's intensely private about that. Mm. And that's why all the criticism will have hurt so deeply, but her Leo will never let her show that. Mm. Mm. She played the long Ever. game. She's played the long game, surely. Yeah. Is that in her chart? It's interesting because Charles was born, drawn to two cancers because, of course, Diana, 1st yeah. of July, was a, a, a sort of like a true-blooded cancer, really. She's so much close to the heart of the sign. And I've talked about how people being born in the early part of the sign and the later part of the sign. Now, Diana was your cancer-sensitive vulnerable nurturing loving and then you've got um another cancer at the you know moving towards the end which is camilla which is kind of like learnt the lessons of cancer Mm. and has learned to sort of like nurture herself first and that was diana's lesson she couldn't nurture herself Mm. she was looking to charles to do that and he was incapable because he also needed that kind of mother figure in his life and he was never going to get that from diana because she wanted a father figure Mm. 
So you had two sort of people desperately damaged. But Camilla, from all I gather, that she had a very Enid Blyton um, childhood. She went to finishing school. You know, there was no massive trauma. So she had all these mothering qualities, which cancer has, because cancer is ruled by the moon and it's mother moon. So Charles was, it's interesting, and I, it's such a shame, really, that if Diana had been not so damaged, it could have worked because he's drawn to that watery, emotional kind of woman. Um, but, you know, she had too much internal work to do yeah. for it ever to work. But Camilla had done a lot of that work, and mm. she loved herself so much that when Charles was faffing about with someone and not making his mind up, she just thought, right, me first, I'm going to get married and do what I want to do with my life. And I think Charles really needed someone like that in his life who was self-sufficient without him. Mm. But that's cancer. All of those qualities. But I like the Leo because Leo is, of course, associated with kings and queens, mm, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, she's got it. And she's got rising Leo. And, you know, the rising sign is how the world perceives you. And it's also what you allowed the world to see. So she's got that. But also her karma, Saturn sign, is in Leo too, meaning she has to, had to learn, a lifetime to learn, what it truly means to be regal royal mm. and i think we've seen that kind of in her haven't we well she has she's, she's, she's like become evolved. she's really grown into role. she also is quite a leonine in her appearance yes isn't particularly she? when she got yes. married yes. with that fabulous yeah. ha- sort of halo hat and she has she, the, has she has those slightly wolfish teeth yeah. that are quite sort of <laughs> striking i always think camilla has her moon in cancer as well she's got her venus in cancer her moon and her sun so she's got all this emotional maternal intuitive you know that um um child being a, a watery scorpio scorpio would yeah. have been drawn to mm. now diana as i said had that too but her moon you know was in aquarius which is global mm. which is sort of more relatable mm. whereas with, with with camilla it's more about the personal and the private which i mean again, she, she is very she's a very warm person she's a very she, she does come across as a very warm mm. nurturing person she, she also she, comes across as quite a lot of fun yes and she makes people feel very oh, at is. ease um, yeah She's capable, impressive, and confident. Mastery mm. is her, her name. But she, mm. she ha- was blessed in life. You know, the, the early childhood years do mm. form us. And I think, as I said, she described her childhood as like Enid Blyton and very outdoors and, you know, brought up properly. And then she went to these wonderful things. I'm not, I'm not sure if they still exist, finishing school. No, I don't think they're allowed anymore. <laughs> but uh, so do you think, I actually so taught in one of those. <laughs> did you? How exciting. I taught deportment. Did oh, you? good. <laughs> deportment. So I think so. We you know, there are ways get... to get out of a sports car. Oh, <laughs> Is yes. that with Ankles walking, first. And walking around with a book on your head. Mm. Do you think, so I think yes, she's I probably going that. to be a success, isn't she? Um, as and when it happens. I think she knows that she's stepping on sacred ground with mm. Diana and mm. you know there's people who had tremendous love because Diana just sort of gave her heart mm. because she unfortunately Diana gave her heart she was because she wasn't loved herself and mm. she didn't know how to love herself so she, she tried to seek love by making everybody else fall in love with her mm. which we all did she was so vulnerable see Camilla will never do that she's too private and she's like a crab that mm. goes into her shell mm. But only you, to the people who know her well. Do you, do you think give. she's tactful? Do you think she's tactful? Because that that sort of being member of the royal family uh, as a as a spouse requires a huge amount of tact and sort of tap dancing ability. The idea of you know being but just standing behind. That's why um, the Duke of Edinburgh was quite good at that, in that he very happily let the Queen lead. I imagine 
she's got to, a few lessons to learn that she can't rush in all the time. Yeah, I think the cancer, though, is so strong. I mean, cancer is the most sensitive sign of the zodiac, the most intuitive, the most empathetic. That is her within. You know, people don't see that, but people who know and love her would see that. But as I said, the Leo will shield that. She won't show her vulnerability. As I said, I think she would have been very, very hurt by the reaction to her, mm. um, you know, um, and, 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 you know, how the press hounded her for a while. But I think I think she's learned, and I said her her satin is in, you know, is in Leo too. Good. So learning how to be truly a true leader is someone who's humble, as well as regal and commands it respect. That's true, and that's what we see in the Queen, I guess, as well. Is, There's yeah. humility there as well. Well, thanks, Teresa. Mm. Let's hope it goes well because the royal yes. family could do with a few yeah. breaks at the moment. Yes, some bit bit of jolliness in there. Bit of jolliness. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Camilla's fun. I think she makes people laugh. I mean, I think she is, is a socialite. She's very good at uh, at you know easing conversation if there's awkward silences. I'm sure she'd be the person to fill it in. No, Imagine she, she likes a whiskey um, as well. She, she looks d- like somebody who likes a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Yes. No, I hate whiskey. I hate whiskey. Yeah. Disgusting. She looks like she likes whiskey and water. Whiskey and water, six o'clock. Yes. Let's get going. Exactly. Thank you. All right. We'll love to talk to you, Teresa. And we'll speak to you soon. And you. Take care, bye. Take care, you too. Bye-bye. That was Teresa Chung, spiritualist and author of the Encyclopedia of Birthdays. I think Camilla's going to be fine. Yes, she'll be fine. Absolutely fine. If you enjoy listening to the half hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you would like to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or tweet me at Westminsterwag or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edward Jones. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>